This is a Podcat Nation production. everyone. We cannot wait for you to hear this episode. We had the most wonderful conversation with the Reverend Claire Morgan about some really beautiful and also challenging aspects about their faith and the Anglican Church of Canada. Before we get started, we wanted to let you know that some of our conversation discusses important but really difficult topics, including sexism, homophobia, and transphobia within the church, the relationship of Indigenous peoples to the church on this land, and the Canadian residential school system. This podcast is recorded and produced on the unceded, ancestral, and occupied lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We are grateful and thankful to the traditional caretakers of this land. Without any further ado, hope you enjoy this episode and are enlightened and enriched by the words of the Reverend Claire Morgan. Hello and welcome to Sainted Love, the podcast about beliefs, culture, morality, philosophy, and all the messy parts of religion and spirituality. My name's Nick Andrews. I'm Kiyomi Hori. And I'm Olivia Poverchuk. How are you guys doing today? Not bad. Doing all right. Not bad. All right, all right, all right. Good, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, I think week three of being here with a pumpkin spice latte. It's, we're doing great. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Autumn has come in full, full force. In Vancouver, it was like 40 degrees and then suddenly I overnight know. it it's, was raining. It was 12 at night. I love it. Getting it's ready. So like, it's only 13 degrees. I love it so much. Something <laughs> that I've realized since moving to this province is that those seasons are like, they're dramatic, but there's only two of them. Yes. Yeah. We get spring, <laughs> we get fall, and we get like two weeks of summer and winter and that's pretty and much about it. four years of winter in between mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh, on the prairies it's like there's more of a like a melding between the seasons but you actually have all four seasons and then here it's just like hot or it's like gray i, and I feel like i just put my summer tires on my car yeah and now you got like i basically did yeah on the winter but ones. also <laughs> put on winter tires like a month <laughs> Yeah, yeah, good times. How's your week been? Oh, it's been pretty good. I got a new video game yesterday. What'd you oh, get? What'd you get? Uh, or a couple of days ago. It's called Immortals Phoenix Rising. It's like about like mythology and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Right now it's all like Greek mm-hmm. gods and stuff like that. I think there's oh, other wow. ones in expansion packs and stuff. But it's really fun. It's kind of like a, a mix of like Zelda Breath of the Wild and Assassin's Creed, both, with both of which I really love. There's mm-hmm. like an open world concept and mm-hmm. there's like lots of fun like little dungeons and stuff. It's really fun. I like it a lot. Next week, Kiyomi just does the episode themselves and Nick and I play Are this playing. video. Yeah, I, <laughs> I just talk about whatever i want <laughs> no one can interrupt me or tell me what to do <laughs> it's the dream the dream yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, should we uh, have a chat let's, let's get into it. it let's talk about stuff let's talk about everything <laughs> so this week uh we have a really wonderful guest the reverend claire morgan Claire is a cradle Anglican who spent several years as a Wiccan before returning to the church in 2005. A Celtic harpist and composer since 2002, Claire received a BFA in creative writing from the University of Victoria in 2007 and went on to complete a Master of Divinity from the Vancouver School of Theology in 2014. They were ordained to the priesthood in the Anglican Church of Canada in 2016. 
Claire currently serves as a community director and co-chaplain of the Hineni House, a spiritual intentional community of young adults affiliated with St. Margaret's Anglican Church in the Cedar Cottage neighborhood, and as a licensed chaplain to St. Jude's Anglican Home, a Vancouver coastal health care facility primarily for people with dementia. Claire is also affiliated with the Inayati Sufi community in the Pacific Northwest and beyond, and has been sharing music among them since 2017. Claire, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. I feel like I made that intro way too long. Oh, it was wonderful. (laughs) There's so many great things in there. Thank you for joining us. We're very excited to have you. My first podcast. Oh my goodness. So you are an Anglican priest. Yes. Can you uh, just tell us a little bit about the communities that you work in? Yeah. um, So uh, I'm at uh, Hineni House, which uh, is this intentional community. Everybody always is like, what is that? So (laughs) it is is a place hosted in the former rectory of St. Margaret's Cedar Cottage, which would have been where the priest used to live. Mm -hmm. They had been renting it out uh, to a family for many years because the priest didn't need it. And then they decided they wanted to do something more interesting with it than just renting it out. There were many ideas, a lot of them having to do with social housing, but the city was, you know, not really super great about allowing for something like that. Uh, So we ended up creating this place for young people to come and live for up to three years. And they come there to learn what it means to live in community and to explore spirituality, whatever it looks like. Um, So the the intent is not conversion or anything like that. They can come to church across the street if they want to, but they don't have to. Most of the folks who've come there have been Christian or kind of raised with like nothing. We've had one or two Muslims, uh, but... um, it's been really cool. We find them on social media. They reach out to us and it's just amazing like to meet these folks who kind of want to just have a place where it's not weird to talk about like big concepts and ideas and explore prayer and things like that. So that's that's one thing that I do. And uh, then I'm a chaplain in a care home services and stuff before COVID, but uh, right. our chapel is full of PPE and other things right now. So I've basically spent the whole pandemic playing music and singing, um, which is wonderful and lovely. And I'm fine with that. Um, And it's just much more engaging in a way for Mm. folks that have things like Alzheimer's because music is amazing for people who are living with a disease like that. It Mm -hmm. kind of brings them into a much more... uh, I don't know. It's difficult. Like I I want to avoid like, you know, sort of stigmatizing language, but um, I often see it sort of in terms of like they're existing often in a different time period than me at the same time. So it's like if you want to bring them into the same time period, music is really helpful, I guess, is a way to put it. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really well put. Yeah, music is a really fantastic, especially for people who have issues with memory for various reasons. But um, like any form of just like brain injury yeah yeah development yeah it's like that mm. yeah music's real good really great yeah, yeah. thank you mm-hmm. so something that i wanted to talk about just briefly is so this is something that i've seen you do on twitter i follow you on twitter <laughs> yeah and this is something that i've seen you do a few times and i was just wondering if you could just expand on it a little bit you do something called twitter matins oh um, yeah and I, I, you maybe <laughs> haven't done it for a while but i've seen you do that in the past can you just uh talk a little bit about that yeah i used to be so good about it i used to uh <laughs> I used to do it like every morning and every night um, when I was first in seminary. So there's this thing in the Anglican tradition called the daily office, where you basically say um, a set of prayers in the morning and a set of prayers in the evening. And there's this sort of 
widespread idea that it's kind of a thing that clergy do. And so when you're like learning to be a priest or a deacon, you're often encouraged to like make this a part of your routine. But really, it's actually something that like anyone can do if they have a copy of the prayer book and should, because that's really important to Anglican tradition is like the regular practice of prayer. But when I was encouraged to do that, I, I did it by myself for a bit, but it was just way more interesting to do it on Twitter. So like I've done it differently over time. Like sometimes it was a very like kind of constricted version of it. And then sometimes I would just type out like almost everything. So I'll just kind of, yeah, type it out on Twitter. I remember going through a phase where like it was really important that I never cut and paste anything that I always type it out because that felt more live. And then I would try and like share parts of the Psalms. And I was like, this is interminable, like flipping between (laughs) pages, cut and paste from like a PDF of the prayer book. It just was a little bit easier. But yeah. And then um, over time, sometimes it would only be in the evening. Sometimes it would be in the morning. So matins would be the morning. And then sometimes I would do Twitter Compline or Twitter Vespers in the evening. The uh, the engagement with it was like kind of back and forth. Sometimes I would get quite a bit, sometimes not so much. Um, and like also sharing things like, you know, songs on YouTube that I liked that kind of made sense. It, we'd been trying to find ways among friends of mine at seminary to gather because there was this encouragement at the time for all of us to gather in person. This is way before COVID, of course. And it was it was one of those things that always really frustrated a lot of us because in an old model of doing seminary, you'd be living like in dorms and stuff and you'd be this little, this little community, this almost cloistered community. But in the world we live in, that's just not possible. Like I'm, you know, I have a place to live. Like I'm not, right. and you know, our days were so busy that to be at seminary at like 8 a.m. to do morning prayer, like that was just not possible for people with jobs and kids and things like that. So we were always trying to find a way to like do things kind of more remotely. And um, we we did a whole thing with like Google Meet or whatever it was, and it just never seemed to work. And I just always found that doing it on Twitter like was kind of easiest. Um, Yeah, that was sort of my reasoning behind that. That was great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> That's really interesting. I, I've seen you do that a few times. And I've just always been a little bit curious about. I was wondering if you could uh, give us a little bit of a rundown of your knowledge of the Anglican Church of Canada. Just um, your kind of Cliff Notes version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Give us a long. Easy, right? So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, a lot of people, you know, don't really know that much about the Anglican Church. Um, those that know a little bit will often kind of make jokes like, eh, it only it only exists because King Henry VIII wanted to marry a new kid, a new person. And it's like, <laughs> no, like, the, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Oh, that's weird. Um, <laughs> 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 that's weird. You know, that, like, we're not going to try and pretend that that wasn't a part of it. But because England is this time tiny island that is weird and has weird island culture. The Catholic Church in England before Henry was always a little bit different than the Roman Catholic Church. It also had a very different experience of Christianity when it came to England, like a lot of other places where Christianity came in those very early days where it was kind of butting up against like the indigenous pagan religion of the place. It was a much more sort of difficult like transition between the two. And in England and Ireland, it it wasn't as much like it was sort of accepted um, a lot more easily and freely so the catholic english church was always a little bit different already they had their own traditions and stuff like that and so when king henry 
ended up breaking with Rome. Like, I mean, for one thing, the church after him, like, really didn't change at all. Like, pretty much everything was the same. It's just that he was the one in charge instead of the Pope. It was really his children that made the transition to a more Protestant church and with varying degrees. And yet there were also like kind of proto-Protestant groups that existed before that, that informed it. So the Anglican church became the Anglican church, more Protestant. It became a colonizing church, of course. So Mm. we have a long history of that in Canada and in the U.S., The Anglican Church in the U.S. is actually quite different from the Canadian Church because of their complicated relationship with the U.K. We're kind of Anglophiles. They're not down there, right? Right, right. Their (laughs) method of governance is quite different from the Canadian one. Yeah, and um, how a lot of people see us is uh, we're often called kind of the middle way between Catholic and Protestant. Mm. You will find churches that look very Catholic, but a very weird kind of Catholic because it's like, Catholic from like 300 years ago (laughs) and then you'll have ones that are like more happy clappy like more kind of almost evangelical there's a huge variety under this very big tent and it uh, it just kind of depends on the sort of individual history of the church you're in the history and makeup of the neighborhood in which it was built because where people come from also inform that it's a it's it's a it's a very it's both diverse and has an idea that in some ways that it's more diverse than it is it's complicated (laughs) so the anglican church i have limited experience with the anglican church primarily as a musician but it seems to me that the current anglican church at least the the ones that I've had some uh, kind of relationship with are um, relatively progressive. Like there's fairly welcoming attitudes towards LGBTQ people. There's, I've noticed some, at least with some of the churches, there's a reconciling attitude towards relations with indigenous peoples. I was just wondering, is it accurate to say that the Anglican church is a progressive church? Is that inaccurate? Is it more complicated than I'm trying to make it? (laughs) That one. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm always aware of folks who come from other traditions, especially folks that I've encountered who are from like very conservative traditions, we seem like heaven on earth. And for me who grew up in like, I was very fortunate. I grew up in a very mainline church. It was pretty progressive. Like my experience compared to others, like I've never really felt any sense of, I was not spiritually abused. I, I was always sort of affirmed. The, the, the biggest challenge for me was just seeing hungers that I had that weren't being fed. It wasn't about being squished into a box or anything like that. So it's all, it's, it's very relative. Like you said, relatively, I was like, yes, key, key word is relative because we're so diverse. You'll see just a multitude of beliefs and attitudes. We definitely have that very British trappings of colonialism. <laughs> right. We can be very clerical because we're, we're not as hierarchical as the Catholics, but we're close. Mm-hmm. Right. And I have friends who, as part of their church community, would go to climate justice justice rallies would chain themselves to trees and get arrested, take the lead from indigenous peoples, take the lead from queer people, actually build safe and affirming communities. And then there's people who do exactly the opposite. Right. And and then we all argue with each other about which ones are really like of a course, real yeah. Anglican yeah, stance. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, doing it's, more, it's difficult to pin down what, which one yeah. could be said to be truly Anglican. 
Great. Thank you. Yeah. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit about your experience? So you, you were raised in the Anglican Church. Yes. And then you left and then you came back. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your story if you're comfortable? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, um, my, my mom's family has been Anglican going back generations. I have abolitionists among my ancestors. I have missionaries among my ancestors. It was like a long history of Anglicanism. And so that was what I kind of came up in. It's unusual. I don't meet a lot of other millennials that have that experience who are from here. It's more common in the East. Um, right. the, the relationship with churches is very different. I lived in Ottawa for three years when I was a kid, and uh. I can really like see the <laughs> tension between how the East and how the West encounters religion, which is really interesting. So we went and when we actually moved there in like 1993, so I was like eight years old, I think. And that was where I feel like we were really, really involved with the church. And I sort of had a greater sense of what it meant to be Anglican. Mm -hmm. So I was part of the church choir. I felt like I had a job in church, but sort of religious instruction was not fantastic. Like it was basically, <laughs> you know, just on the Sundays where we weren't singing because some Sundays the women and girls choir wouldn't be singing. They would just shuffle me into the basement with all these other kids and someone's mom who was way too tired and like not really educated in terms of <laughs> high-minded theology would give us coloring pages and we'd talk about how Jesus wants to be our friend and that was like not really very inspiring what fed me was the encounter with the service and the liturgy and just the same the routine of the liturgy the words like some folks will criticize the Anglican church and say that it's all rote and there's no sort of life behind it but it that's not my experience my experience is very much that the words get written on your heart and you kind of find new life in them. Mm -hmm. So I was really into that. But as I got a little bit older, um, there was the very normal experience of like, well, I'm not a little kid anymore. I don't think that these things actually happened in a way that could be captured on film, you know, like in the stories of the Bible and that everybody kind of goes through that critical dissonance moment. That's what Paul Ricoeur calls it. Mm. And there were also things that I wasn't finding that I needed. I wanted I wanted more of a feminine presence in the divine. I wanted more of an encounter with creation, with the world around me, that kind of thing. And so that was actually why I explored Wicca for a few years, mm. because we had, you know, there's a relationship with the goddess and it's all about the created order being like a manifestation of the divine will and being sort of infused with divine energy. And it also had things that were familiar to me, like the sabbats, which are the sort of holy days that you observe. Mm -hmm. So that part I was like, oh, yes, we have this in the church in a way. I remember this. I, I have this weird thing where like some of the sort of mystical new agey shit I'm really into and some of it <laughs> I'm very skeptical about. And sometimes it's kind of at the same time. Hmm. So like, sure. I'll be like, mm -hmm. people are so into crystals. I don't really, but I have like a thousand crystals behind me. <laughs> like, it's so the relationship that Wicca has with magic, like some people are really about the magic and casting spells. And like, I tried it a couple times. I 
didn't really feel like anything really happened. I would have these moments where I was like, is it actually okay to do things like casting love spells? Like, do Mm. I want to be, you know, coercing someone with that? And so that was actually kind of the beginning of my struggling with it because there was, you know, it's, it's based on much older traditions, Wicca, but in terms of it, how it's codified now, it's pretty modern. Like it was kind of the 50s and 60s that it started to really become more codified. And I personally, and I want to be very clear, like I have many friends who just, that was where their life actually started was when they were able to engage with this very life-giving and sometimes salvific tradition that helped them rekindle a relationship with God after horrible spiritual abuse. Mm. My experience with it was more like I wanted something that I felt more personally connected to. I wanted something that had a long history. I had this moment where I was like, okay, so you're allowed to be a solitary practitioner. This is like a legitimate way Mm -hmm. to encounter this religion. Mm -hmm. So that's cool. And a lot of people do that. But for me personally, I was like, but if I'm by myself, like I can just kind of do and say whatever I want and no one's holding me accountable to anything. <laughs> yeah. mm. I need someone to push back against. I need someone to, and, and a tradition to sort of breathe within and challenge and wrestle with. Mm-hmm. So I started to walk away. There was also, it was so interesting because outside of the academy, none of us really had this language in like the early 2000s, but when I look back on it now, I was like, oh, there was cultural appropriation happening in there. And it made me uncomfortable. And I couldn't say why, because I didn't know what it was. So I started to walk away. I started to think, well, I don't think I'm really a Christian, but I, I, Jesus was cool. I'm okay with Jesus. I don't know what I am. And then I kind of had two moments where parts of me were seduced. One of them was intellectual. So I took some classes. Uh, I lived in the UK for nine months in the city of Norwich and I took some art history classes Mm. and we read a bunch of, like we read Thomas Aquinas, we read Anselm, like a whole bunch of ancient and medieval writings and suddenly I was like all the questions that I have they've been people have been struggling with them for thousands of years it's okay that I have these questions it doesn't mean that I'm not allowed to call myself part of this tradition so that was part of it and then there was a more sort of mystical experience where I was kind of at the end of my rope and very depressed and I was living in Norwich I went downtown one day I was just like in a really really bad place and I walked into this little church there's church Churches everywhere, and some of them are defunct because they're so old and they don't have parishes in them, like communities in right. them. But because they're heritage buildings, no one can tear them down. So it was just like sitting there with the door unlocked and there was no one there. So yeah. I walked in and um, sat down. And whenever I tell this story, I say, and then I prayed a very 21st century prayer. So it went like this. Hey, you and me haven't spoken in a while, I guess. If you could fix my life, that would be just great. Because if you don't, I really don't know what I'm going to do. And it wasn't, I wasn't on the road to Damascus. I didn't fall off my horse. I didn't like start falling and wiggling and anything. But there was just this incredible, profound sense of acceptance. And this very, there was so much humor in that presence with me. It was very much like, Oh, honey, you haven't killed anybody. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) Everything's fine. You are 20 years old and very confused and it's okay. I promise Mm -hmm. it's okay. And there was a very specific um, issue that I had been having at the time. And the next day, it had completely resolved itself. 
And scientifically speaking, I recognize like it, it was never really an issue to begin with. It was just a source of anxiety. But human beings make meaning. So for me, I chose to let that moment of grace be the moment that defined my life, that my experience of having been saved from this terrible place was not only going to define what I did, but I wanted other people to know about it because I knew that other people were struggling with with much worse. And that was part of how I became a priest, um, was wanting to share that experience and not have it be tied to like, oh, you were saved from being so disgusting. It was more for me about you are saved from this false image of yourself that you are disgusting. You are actually deeply loved and cared for, and you always were. And whatever you've done, you are capable of being saved from that and saved from this false self. And you can choose to live as though you have always been loved, even though it may be very hard to do so. That was kind of what led me to wanting to become a priest, which was also a very, very long journey through many, many uh, switchback roads and thickets and things like that. (laughs) Thank you. That's really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. That very 21st century prayer. is me smudging every time it's great i'm like hi <laughs> i know i'm not alone what's up uh there are a lot of aspects <laughs> of your story that really resonate with me uh, especially when you're talking about looking back at the history of the church and early christian thinkers that really resonates with me because that's really something like uh, i'm not really a part of the church except as a musician at the moment but I was for a very long time. And uh, that's something that always is like, maybe you should come back because look at these really interesting writings from especially (laughs) people like Aquinas and early thinkers and current thinkers and like liberation theology and things like that. There's, there's so much really interesting like writing and scholarship and like the intellectual part of it. People like to think of the church as anti-intellectual and there are some churches that are, but the history of the church is incredibly intellectual. Some really amazing intelligent thinkers that i find very seductive well, it's like, like anything it's like always dangerous to pigeonhole anyone or any group mm-hmm. into one specific yeah. mindset mm-hmm. or things so, oh, yeah. yeah that's why i i, I sometimes get like it, it's so challenging um especially with anglicanism because it has this I, I wanted to say history, but it's not even history because it still continues this 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 identity as this colonizing force. And yet, like Christianity is so vastly diverse. And I mean, in its source, like its source material was this movement of like workers and the poor and women. And you can still see that being lived out authentically in, yeah, like liberation theology. You've got Gutierrez, you've got um, The Cross and the Lynching Tree by Mm. James H. Cohn. Like it's always existed. People have always taken this story and seen themselves within it. And it's so important to remember that this kind of white hegemony of Christianity, like it's kind of like talking about race. Like you can't just be the person that's like, well, and none of it's real. It's like, okay, maybe it's not real, but the effects of it are real. (laughs) But it's still true in that it was never meant to be that. It was never that that's never been the sole energy or animus I guess behind it it's always been this incredibly diverse movement of different types of thinking Mm -hmm. from the beginning yeah absolutely Mm. 
is literally a brown guy executed by the state. Yeah. Like it doesn't yeah. get much yeah. more radical than that. And yet somehow we turned that into Werner Herzog, Jesus with the blue eyes, yeah, oh, yeah. playing football with kids, you know, right. like <laughs> what went wrong? <laughs> so many things. So, so many, so things, many really. things. What aspects? <laughs> Of Anglican Church of Canada, do you view critically or see as problematic? And how do you reconcile those aspects with mm. your practice of faith? I talked a little bit about it before. Like, it, mm. it's a colonizer's religion. All the baggage of that remains within the church. And uh, how does that come about? It's like, I would say there's a privileging of like a British cultural heritage language and custom over more organic and indigenous and that's like both small and big i indigenous forms of uh, mm. those things the relationship to the state of the uk like is quite problematic in many ways it still exists formally in the uk so like they still have this very like formalized um relationship it actually is kind of still the state religion in a sense um, and then, of course, in Canada, that still exists, but it was much more codified in all of the worst <laughs> parts of Canadian history, like so-called residential schools. Mm. I find also sometimes I struggle with um, so there's there's this uh, it's it's a lovely thing, but it becomes a, almost idolatrous, I would say, like the the way that people fall in love with the language that we use for prayer um, people. So we have prayer books and where are so um, a lot of Christian traditions, you become a member of a church by like assenting to or signing sort of a, a confession and ascribing mm -hmm. to a certain set of beliefs. Anglicanism is not like that. It's like if you if you come and hang out with us and worship like our belief, it, it's there's a there's a phrase that's lex orandi, lex credendi, which is like what we pray, we believe basically. So if you want to know what we believe, you look at our prayer books and the way that we compose our prayers and the language and concepts that we use, like that is basically our statement of faith. It means that we take a ton of time composing them because they're these, they have these layers of meaning to us, but it means that people can become so entranced with the language that it becomes almost idolatrous. So our old prayer books, which a lot of people grew up with, they're beautifully composed and there's a lot of good stuff in there, but they're also like super colonialist and racist and anti-Semitic and heterosexist. And so whenever someone says, hey, maybe we should update these, there's always a huge fight about that. Again, like we're not quite as hierarchical as the Catholics, but we're pretty hierarchical still. There's a lot of clergy privilege or clericalism. It can be really, really elitist and gross the way that it comes out, especially in interacting with lay people. I've struggled a lot with staying at all many times. What keeps me there is my love of what I see as godly within it. So one of those things would be part of how we came to be and one of the original values of this new thing was that we were finished with Latin. We wanted people to be able to understand what they were praying. Mm. And mm. that's beautiful, like a beautiful democratizing of like, no, everybody should be able to understand what they're actually saying to God, which collapses a certain level of hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So um, that's part of it. Um, the focus on ritual and prayer this is kind of like an echo of our of our sort of Celtic and Gaelic heritage is that part of ancient Gaelic tradition was that everything was a prayer. It's like 
You get up in the morning and wash your face. There's a prayer for that. You milk the cows. There's a prayer for that. That exists and continues in the Anglican tradition at its best, that everything is an act of worship. And I mean, I think that's the only way to live in the world and actually sort of cultivate the good within it is if you see everything as a potential for worship. Mm. The centrality of the doctrine of God becoming human and flesh and the Holy Trinity is also a really important thing to me. There are always radicals within any tradition that seek justice within it. I'm passionate about that. Um, I'm really passionate about those proto-Protestant groups I talked about, um, like Lollardy. They had some things that I don't really agree with, but they created the first Bible in English. They said, hey, you, you, the church has way too much money. <laughs> Maybe we should be not having so much money, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Maybe there shouldn't be clergy because that codifies hierarchy. All of these things are things that I love about this tradition. I wouldn't say necessarily that I reconcile it. It's more that I accept that every human institution is flawed. And if I want it to be better, I have to find ways to feed and nurture the good. And again, that's one of the reasons why I got ordained. Kind of embracing the the butting of heads in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah a little yeah. bit. Yeah, there's always going to be people within any tradition that highlight the best of it. And you can decide to support them or not. And I mean, you just have to be on the lookout for them. I do try to... Uh, I guess one of my professors would call it read generously, like just entering into things in a spirit of curiosity, but also naming movements toward life and justice when I see them. That's important, too. Absolutely. If I may, because we've started to get into it with the colonialism of the Anglican Church and whatnot, you've started to touch on it. <sighs> It's so hard when we're like deep in conversation. We have a list of like bullet points to go through <laughs> when you're talking about something that's so human and like intangible, which is let's talk about specifically the Canadian Anglican Church and our indigenous people. Are you especially obviously we've known about residential schools for decades and over a century that they've existed and they were everything that they were. We know. Are you noticing a kind of change of the relationship between the Anglican Church and the indigenous communities? Are you noticing any kind of like form of acknowledgement and attempts at reconciliation? Are you seeing that change? It's a hard question to phrase, but you know what I'm getting yeah, at. Yeah, no, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's also incredibly complicated. Exactly. So there are things that we've done that are different from other traditions that I think are better. And then that has to be balanced with all the ways that we fail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in some ways, I'm proud. Um, we, the United Church of Canada, always beats us on justice issues. <laughs> there, are, there are reasons that I am Anglican and not United, but they will always get us. And they have that Methodist edge to them. That That is an organic outgrowth of our, of my tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and it Simon. also exists in um, like the Presbyterians and stuff like that. Like They have that call. So they were, I think they were the first Canadian church to apologize for mm -hmm. residential schools. Mm -hmm. And it, let me be very clear, it wasn't, we apologize for the abuse. It was the whole system. Mm -hmm. They came out and were like, this was a bad idea. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't yeah. have done this. This was in the 80s that they did that. Yeah. The Anglican church, I don't remember specifically the list, like where we are on the list, but our apology came in 1993. And okay. it was the okay. same thing. This was a bad idea. 
we're sorry, we want to do better. There were a lot of uh, dioceses that raised a bunch of money to contribute to settlements. There were dioceses that ended up dissolving because people began to sue, which they should, and they should dissolve because we have this whole thing about new life coming out of death, which we sometimes forget about because we love our little idols. That was, you know, like there, I know a Bishop in one diocese specifically who said like, no, we, we are meant if we're going to die because of this, it's meant to happen and there will be new life and that's fine. Mm. And there's so many things that we failed at then and we continue to fail at. Um, We are still incredibly racist. We're still incredibly colonialist. We don't listen to indigenous people. We don't sort of step back to allow for them to do their own advocacy. There are good things as well. Um, Our most recent general synod, which is sort of a gathering, it happens once every three years, and a lot of the uh, the sort of work of the church happens there with the help of bishops, clergy, and lay people as well. We did uh, sort of affirm the quite organic and indigenous movement within the church for a self-determining indigenous church. Mm -hmm. So that was a really important thing for us to do was to say like, hey, um, your experience of this faith and this institution is so different from ours and we need to allow for you to make your own encounter with it and to have your own norms and laws that are divorced from ours, which historically were the oppressor and the colonizer. Mm. I was really excited about that. A Mm. lot of us were. And yet (laughs) you can see how folks will like, will we just recently decided to make, you know, September 30th be like a stat holiday. It's like, yeah. that's great. Is that all we're going to do? <laughs> right. Like, right. oh, everybody's going to feel so excited that we've done this thing. And then they're going to think the work is done because there's a whole holiday now. Like we we do the same thing. Oh, we we apologized. We've given money. We've done this. And when you're accustomed to having more privilege and then things start to shift, it feels like oppression. And so there's always yeah. pushback. It's it's really complicated. There are things that I can celebrate and there are things that I really rage against. And I am very careful when I am having encounters with Indigenous people who are not part of my own tradition, who do not identify as Christian mm-hmm. or Anglican. It's really interesting to see how the relationship of a lot of Black people in the U.S. is so different Uh, to the church Mm. as an institution than the relationship of indigenous people to the church in Canada. Like if you go to some kind of rally in the U S say an anti-racist rally or something like that, like say Charlottesville, there's Mm. clergy and callers everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's not seen necessarily by everybody as activating. But like, if I went to something like that in, in Canada, almost certainly would not wear my collar unless there was a very specific, like, so I went to a, I went to a day of action once uh, in 2018 that was specifically for faith leaders. So it was like, Hey, we want visible faith leaders at this action. So it was like, okay, there's like, I don't remember how many of us there were, but maybe like 25 clergy, maybe more. And we were all in collars. Cause it's like, Hey, like this is who we are. And we are supporting it was uh, against, um, you know, the TMX project uh, or Kinder Morgan. Um, so it was like, yeah, we're showing solidarity because we were invited to. Right. But I've also done other things where I've been invited, you know, in a different capacity. And so then I will not wear this because it's 
it's just I get it would be seen because as like yeah, why yeah. would you do yeah. that? You wear an orange mm-hmm. shirt and you do what they tell you to do because yeah. that's what it means to be an ally and to be in a position of service in a way that's not coercive. Yeah, thank you for that. So this is shifting gears a little bit. Yeah. I'm wondering how how do you personally define faith and in what ways, if any, does that differ from the kind of quote unquote official position of the Anglican church? Mm. How does your experience and understanding of faith differ from what is taught on a more official level? This was such a great question. So like the word faith has so much baggage Um, and one thing that I really love about Anglicanism, but I know a lot of other people find very frustrating about us is that for the most part, we tend to avoid being too codified around definitions and things. And there's a very, there's a very good reason for that. It's not just because we're wishy-washy, although that is a part of who we are. (laughs) There's actually a really good reason for it. It is an honest response to having the struggle over defining things be often interrupted by violence in a small space. So if you are living on an island and you're going to get into a big fight over what the real presence in the bread and wine means, like it's really difficult because you don't have a lot of space to flee from one another. And if you're going to fight, one of you has to be sure that you're going to win. It was a response to many traumatic instances of state violence and organic violence between Catholic and Protestant in those early years. And so we kind of learned that it was easiest in such a small space to be ambiguous. So there are many sort of moments and pieces of the prayer book where you can see that ambiguousness being cultivated. There will be moments where... um, Words are said and you can tell that there's a meaning there, but that meaning is sort of left up to the individual who is reading. It happens a lot with the Eucharist. They don't sort of say explicitly, like there'll be moments where it sounds like transubstantiation. And then there are moments where it sounds like the opposite. And it's all kind of put in there together because they know that some people will be more inclined toward one and some will be more inclined toward the other. And they're going to be in the same church standing side by side waiting for the bread. So you got to make space for everybody. Mm -hmm. So when you ask me what Anglicanism says about faith, I mean, that that has as many answers as there are people to whom to ask the question. So from my sort of reflexive institutional mindset that I would say as like the inheritor of this codified tradition as a religious official, I would say that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, which is a Mm -hmm. biblical quote. It's from the letter to the Hebrews. And again, there's a lot of leeway there. There's a lot of openness and ambiguity. And faith in the world that we're living in, in the modern and postmodern world, it tends to be seen, I think, by a lot of people and certainly in more conservative groups. It's like faith is like just like a belief in something that can't be proven scientifically, but is like more important than facts. Like it's this very like structured, it's sort of set in opposition to fact. And I've always understood faith personally as being like, so we talk about having faith in something as offering offering intellectual assent to something. And I think that's such a poor understanding of faith, because if I say, I have faith in my best friend, or I have faith in this institution, that is 
a definition of this of this word, but mm. no one ever seems to really talk about that way of reading it mm. when we talk about religious faith. And like to me, that is the core of faith that you have faith in that you have a relationship of trust with this, you know, the divinity or the source or whatever one you want to call it. Mm. And you have a, a sort of covenantal relationship with that being. And you have faith that it loves you and that it loves the world and wants what's best for the world. That to me is like a much more, I'm not going to say it's honest, but that makes more sense to me than the sort of standard definition that I mm -hmm. think a lot of people mm -hmm. think of when they think of faith. I've had sort of conversations with, you know, back in the days when new atheism was really popular and folks would just sort of say, like, I remember having this conversation with a guy in a, I used to go to this goth club and <laughs> he, <laughs> he sort of said to me, like, I can't believe that you that you actually believe that the earth was created in seven days. And I was like, I don't. I also don't believe in a flying teapot. Like, what's your point? <laughs> Why would you just assume that I believe that? You haven't yeah. even talked to me yeah. yet. Mm. Like, let's talk about the God that you don't believe in, because I bet that it's the same as the one that I don't believe in, right? Mm. I just don't think it's fair to say that that is what faith is. It's such a poor and starving definition of that word, mm. I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, again, with like the pigeonholing yeah. like, mm -hmm. broad assumptions across the board, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's crazy how something as ethereal as the idea of the divinity can create such a diverse idea, diverse uh, array of beliefs about it. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's a, it's a wonder that we don't all believe the exact same thing. <laughs> so Because we're all so similar yeah. uh -huh. <laughs> as people. I mean... What I think is so fascinating is that if you begin to, like the other spiritual teachers that I resonate the most with are like the mystics mm. who defy any kind of classification or categorization and often are at odds with the reigning institution. Right, yeah. mm. But the, um, the, uh, the, the synchronicity between their beliefs and writings is quite striking. Mm. So that part, I think, I think that's where you find like, you know, we all talk about how, oh, there's no objective truth. And like, I do, I'm kind of a postmodernist too. Like, I do believe that there are very few truths that are actually objective. And is anyone actually capable of being objective? I would argue no. But I do believe that there are things that are true. And I think that they come out in writings like that because they're so unconcerned with like being appropriate or polite <laughs> or mm. using appropriate metaphors for God or appropriate imagery for God. Like my first experience of that I was nine years old and my mom had the Lorena McKennett album, The Mask and Mirror. And her favorite track was, I think, number three, which is The Dark Night of the Soul. And it was Lorena McKennett's musical rendition of St. John of the Cross's poem of the same name. Hmm. And as a nine-year-old, like my mom would just get so like moved by this track. And as a nine-year-old, I'm listening to it and I'm like, this is just a love song. Like what's so special about this? <laughs> so finally, one day I said to her like, why do you like this track so much? It seems like kind of boilerplate. And um, she said to me, no, you don't understand. It's not a love song. It's about the soul and God. And I was like, you can talk about God like that? <laughs> it blew my mind. <laughs> To imagine God not as, you know, when you're a kid, it's like God is, I guess that, I mean, it, it's sort of an honest understanding because as a child, like for the most part, this sort of relationship that's prime in your life is a parent. So you see right. God as a parent. Sure. Mm. 
And then suddenly to understand that no, God is like the beloved Mm. and the lover. Mm. Like that's just, there's a reason that mystics are often like banished and murdered (laughs) because they say shocking and amazing things, Yeah, Yeah. you know? Um, and a lot of times, and sometimes explicitly, an almost sexual uh, understanding of the divine and oh, your yeah. relationship with the divine. Yeah, it's really, mm-hmm. which is what you're kind of hinting at. They get real queer, too. That's why mm. I like yeah, them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned you are ordained. Yes. Let's to talk about the Anglican Church and like misogyny and gender discrimination because that's got to be a whole thing. <laughs> I'm sure. Oh, yeah, it's and, a big thing. <laughs> but the fact that you're ordained, like we've talked a couple of the church, the church I grew up, impossible, impossible. If you are Same not thing. a s- cis straight man, you cannot be ordained. I mean, that's just tip of the iceberg, of course. But like mm-hmm. that always jumps out to me if something is not just a cis man who's been ordained. Mm. Whoa. Okay, talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, great difficulty and nuance. Of course. One of our big fights before we started arguing about queer stuff in uh, Anglicanism was women's ordination. There are still plenty of dioceses, so that's kind of like a region in a particular place. Uh, There's plenty of places in the Anglican world where it's not allowed. Mm. In Canada, we just actually, one of the last things I did um, kind of before the pandemic really hit in, I think, winter of either 2018 or 2019, we celebrated 40 years of women's ordination in Canada. Um, but still, that's not very long. Yeah, it's only it's... been sort of like 30 years or so in the in the UK church. And um, so it's it's left up to individual bishops and governing bodies like synods in each diocese. Mm. And there are also places where like, yes, it's allowed, but you still deal with all the BS. I don't want to tell tales, but the UK mm. is really bad for that. So women can be priests yes. and bishops. It's allowed. But if you are a clergy person or a lay person who disagrees with women's ordination, they will literally hook you up with an Episcopal and priestly oversight body, like a bishop or priests who are non-affirming. Mm. So like, if, if you let me phrase it like quite unkindly, if you're scared of getting cooties, they'll make sure that you never have access to cooties. <laughs> like right. you'll never have to <laughs> receive communion from someone who even never mind from a woman, you'll never have to receive communion from someone who's ordained a woman or like agrees with women's ordination. You don't have to be ordained by someone who ordained a woman. Like it, even though it's allowed, but they will give Mm -hmm. you every opportunity to avoid that. And that's kind of like the limitation and the challenge of this openness and diversity is that very centrist thing where it's like, oh no, we have to welcome everybody with no admission that like, if you welcome everybody, like if you really want to be inclusive, like actually inclusive, you have to say no to certain things. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right? It's, it's It's the paradox of inclusion. Yes, it's the paradox of inclusion. And I mean, we also, even in this diocese, which, you know, ordains women and is happy about that and will not put up with that kind of codified stuff, it, it's all the same problems as in the secular world. There's pay disparity. I, I've had like complicated interactions with male priests, especially older male priests, like <sighs> something that we that we struggle with. But, you know, and then you, you look at the Catholic Church, you look at other conservative institutions where women, especially in places where they do complementarian in theology and then it's like if you're a woman you got to be in the house pumping out babies and cooking and right. don't worry that's just as important and you're like no it's not but <laughs> sure pat me on the head and tell me that it is yeah. <laughs> right it's like being given the participation ribbon you're like it's not 
Let me have fun. (laughs) Well, and I mean, that's what's so frustrating is like, because, you know, I'm, I'm a crazy leftist, right? I'm like, no, like you, yes, like building a house, keeping a house and taking care of children. I mean, that is work Mm -hmm. that should be respected, but girl, you need choices. Like give her choices. If you if she wants to do that, she should be supported. Hey, maybe yeah. you should freaking pay her to do that because Boom. otherwise society doesn't function. That's mm-hmm. not the way they see it, right? No. <laughs> of course. Yeah, that's not never what they mean. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, God, no. If you could talk about both your experience as a queer person within the within the Anglican Church, yeah. especially as a queer clergy person, and your experience, um, the, any kind of pushback that you've had personally and that you see within the institution, positives and negatives. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like super complicated. Yeah, of um, this specific diocese, the Diocese of New Westminster, has like mm. a reputation around the world for being the gay diocese <laughs> because we we did a lot of work in the late 90s around uh, commissioning a right for what we then called the blessing of same-sex unions which we called it that because that was before same-sex marriage was actually legal right. in Canada and it was so important and we fought so hard for it and it mm-hmm. split us apart um there mm. were a lot of right. people that took their ball and went home Ugh. And even now, like there are people that come here, clergy and lay people too. There, there. I mean, there are refugees and ex-evangelicals that come to us from other traditions because we are more affirming. And then there are clergy that come here from non-affirming diocese where they're not even supposed to really, you know, be clergy or whatever. And I'm sure to them, like this is a complete oasis because you know it's not as much of an issue. Again, when you come up in this, you can see what's lacking. Um, there's definitely still a ton of homophobia there's a ton of transphobia like we're barely Mm. starting to have that conversation Mm -hmm. it's kind of complicated with me because i'm i'm pansexual uh bisexual um and i'm married to a dude um although everybody thinks i'm gay (laughs) (laughs) it's really funny and like obviously not at all an insult but i just find it really interesting because when i actually ask people especially older people like why exactly do you think i'm gay it, it always comes down to how i look and i'm like right. wow okay yeah. is that really it like fine it's also like the interesting thing of how language evolves and queer is now like queer as a sexuality versus like queer as the activism walk of life so to speak we're like it can be one you can be both it's yeah yeah it's mm-hmm. that definition mm-hmm. got a little more exactly fluid. it's a little right. more loose yeah i'm still super early in my journey as a non-binary person mm-hmm. um and that has been a lot more challenging mm-hmm. it's really complicated <laughs> as a leader because i'm learning how to advocate for yourself when you're part of a group that it's so weird because like it's 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 actually not it's not dissimilar from being bisexual because like you just never see yourself anywhere yeah um and you don't think like you're just not given any vocabulary or any modeling for how to be that way so like i didn't i've known that i mean i didn't know that bisexuality was a thing until i was like 15 and then it was like, oh, shit, you know, <laughs> so like that I've been out so. that way since then. <laughs> but as a non-binary person, like I've been I've been exploring that. Like, I don't think I knew it was a thing until I was like 27 years old, mm-hmm. which was like 10 years ago. And even then, I remember having conversations with people and like just not being believed. Yeah. Because Bio they were like, oh, you're so probably strong. just like pushing back against the constraints that people put on femininity. And I'm like, no, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. yeah. Now That's it's becoming easier it, but... because it's present. 
you know, right. but yes, then yeah. having the courage to correct someone when they misgender you, um, like that's, that's no joke, right? Uh, and so it's interesting, too, because I came up in like, again, I've struggled, but compared to like people who've literally had to flee their churches to live their lives as mm-hmm. they are, I've had to deal with very little of that. But, you know, it's it means that like, I wouldn't say that because I, I our, our tradition is is super queer, but I wouldn't say that that's like a mainstream view. But because I haven't been in the same way as others stifled in that kind of imagination. I am able to see and celebrate the queerness within us so much more easily. So like for me, the story of Mary is so queer. Hmm. Like this woman enters into a joyful consenting covenant with God through the Holy Spirit without any guy involved, Hmm. no layers of coercion (laughs) that are often present in the relationships between men and women. She gives birth to a child from her own body and from God's spirit So the kid is already pushing against simple gender classification on a genetic level, Mm. if you want to go that far. (laughs) Meanwhile, the doctrine of the incarnation, which is the idea that God was made flesh in the person of Jesus, is like super trans. God chooses a new presentation, that of a human being. God passes so well that the disciples don't even recognize God until they come out in the (laughs) resurrection. As a non-binary person, I think the most life-giving thing for me has been the Trinity, which was always a part of my spirituality. There's so much significance there. There is a being who's one and yet three. Like that is singular they. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. most amazingly (laughs) concrete example of singular they. I'm still unpacking what that means, but it's it's been the like perfect encapsulation of how to understand myself is like this beautiful beautiful. affirmation of singular they in a sacred form. I always appreciate queer and trans people and gender non-conforming people and gender non-binary people within traditions who say no this is my tradition too and in fact i'm going to make it a lot more queer um, in the way i read and interpret our faith tradition and there ain't fuck you can do about it (laughs) (laughs) well and the best thing about it too is that the argument is always well you're just being so innovative and you know you're bringing all this new stuff in and a lot of the work that i did in seminary pushed back against that because Mm -hmm. I, i mean i wrote well, first of all, my like major exegetical work, which is one of the big papers you write in seminary, was all about the omnigendered Christ and how mm. like they also push back mm. against even down to the grammar of the passage that I used. You can make an argument for that. But also outside of that, like you've got things like the Apostle Paul who talks about wanting to embody a shameful identity of being like pierced by empire which is mm. kind of queer. You've mm. got weird stories of saints like Saint Thecla, who was like a drag king preacher who baptized herself in water <sighs> and then shaved her head and dressed as a dude <sighs> yeah. and walked around. There's all of the mystics I talked about. Mm-hmm. There is literally a painting. I wrote a whole thing on this about like this this monk had, I think it was Rupert of Dutes who talked about this vision he had of Christ on the cross. And he was so profoundly moved and Christ like leans down from the cross and they start making out. Yes. That is in the tradition. Wow. Like, it's, 
You can't take that away. (laughs) It's in there. It's always been there. And the Empire always does its best to not talk about that because, Mm -hmm. you know, all the reasons that you can imagine that. But it's all in there and it goes back further. And people will say, oh, well, you're just looking at something and reading your own way into it. And it's like, I mean, maybe, but why would you assume that I am? Like, why would you assume that it has to be this other way? The very notion that the soul, the soul grammatically and often in imagery as well is so often classified as feminine Mm. and so you can really like play with that because like okay so if you're gonna try and tell me that there's no queerness in christianity you have to accept the fact that the soul is feminine and so either the dude has a feminine soul within and is like a little bit trans or he's really a dude but then he's making out with jesus like you can't you can't (laughs) disentangle it from that It's all there and it never gets talked about. And that's why I get so frustrated because it's so it's kept silent for so long Mm. and too long. I wish that more people knew about it. Hmm. I was just going to say, I I really love when people say things like, oh, you're just putting your view on things. It's like as if you aren't doing that. (laughs) I know, right? You just happen to be louder. Like this weird, uh, this weird thought process that it's like you're saying something that's slightly less orthodox and therefore you're pushing your own agenda. Whereas I, as somebody who is definitely pushing the orthodox agenda, (laughs) am not putting anything onto it. Mm, Like, of course you are. Every one of us is doing it. Yes. Every one of us is this mixture of what is told to us and what we and what we think. And there's a beautiful relationship and uh, give and take of that. And I think we would all be a lot better if we just acknowledge that at the very, very least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, I'm like, I don't think I've ever heard somebody who is not just actively within a faith community, but a leader within a faith community talk so like just openly about the queerness of Christ and the queerness of this faith tradition. And that's Really, really beautiful. really beautiful. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. I want to Thank be you clear that. that I didn't make any of it up. Like I, <laughs> you know, I, it's my own understanding of things, but all of it exists already. Yeah. Um, that can be the challenge that we were just talking about about this idea of innovation. Like people have been talking about this in the academy and in sort of more general spaces for years and years and years. But this is this is one of the challenges of being an insular community of oppressed people is that there hasn't been made, like space hasn't been made. So it's kind of stuff that we just share together. And I think it's time that it comes out and the unique wisdom of those communities. I mean, it's the same thing with anything that you might see um, as we begin to talk more about anti-racism, like the idea of the cross being a lynching tree, liberation theology, all of these things need to be understood as a unique revelation of different groups of people and put on the same level as the high-minded white theology that we've all kind of absorbed as like the default and the normal understanding, which is absolutely Mm. not true. And there's no excuse in a world where you can literally go on your computer and look up anything in less than a second there's no excuse to privilege that one understanding anymore yes. when you can learn how people live across the planet in less than a second mm-hmm. we all have a story to tell we all need to hear it I appreciate you talking about not just saying, well, here's a kind of a sub understanding of theology or a sub theology, but lifting up queer theology and trans theology and liberation theology and black theology up to the level or and maybe even bringing the other the orthodox theology down a bit so that they're all kind of on the same. These are equally valid ways Mm -hmm. of looking at and approaching theology. Mm -hmm. 
Could you share with us um, something from another faith tradition Mm. or another religion Mm. or philosophical or spiritual tradition that you see as, uh, that you can take inspiration from, that is something that you uh, uh, appreciate or maybe even use to influence your own life? Yeah, we can definitely talk about that because that's a whole thing. Um, So, I mean, there's more general things that I borrow from within like the wider Christian tradition. So like I'll pray the rosary. I have Mm. like my whole house is just covered with icons, Um, (laughs) chant and stuff like that. But over the last five years or so, I've become involved with this Inayati Sufi community. Mm. So Sufism is the mystical arm of Islam. Um, But Inayati Sufism is a Western tradition that grew out of teachings from uh, this fellow called Hazrat Inayat Khan, who was an Indian Sufi and musicologist. There was a whole movement around sort of the the introduction of many Eastern teachings to the West in like the the sort of early and mid 20th century. And so he was kind of a part of that. Um, So I first encountered somebody who has since become a close friend. Um, Her name is Simi Khazi, and she's... um, a teacher of Arabic and uh, Islamic studies at UBC. We had a sort of professional development day for clergy where she came to teach us about Islam. And it was such a great day. I thought that it would, you know, be very sort of dry and academic, and it absolutely wasn't. She did this incredible, um, it was almost spoken word, um, this like the story of the birth of her daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was like just absolutely steeped in her faith and the imagery of that. So uh, she kind of brought me into this community and there are people within it from a ton of different traditions because the movement is interfaith. Sometimes it's complicated. Uh, again, there there can be a lot of cultural appropriation. There can be some kind of new age stuff that gets in there that I don't always know how to interact with. But I've made friends with people from many different Muslim countries and traditions who are academics and mystics. They're steeped in the Quran. They're steeped in the works of spiritual masters like Rumi and Hafiz and Ibn Arabi. And I found that my friendships and conversations have, surprisingly enough, they've enriched my Christianity so much more than I ever thought would be possible. Mm -hmm. I'm very careful in my engagement with the tradition because I don't want to culturally appropriate. Um, I'm I'm sure I fail all the time, but I've been given a lot of grace and the invitation to grow and learn and contribute my own gifts within that community. So mostly it's been music. I've done a lot of composing that's been informed by what I've learned about the Quran and Sufi poetry and stories, but I've also done Salat, the daily prayer, I have whirled, um, so like whirling dervishes, a lot of people practice that, so I've done that. I've received teaching from a Rifai Sufi teacher who's based out of Turkey. His name's Sharif Baba Chatalkaya. He's wonderful. Um, I, I'm really, I really feel connected to him. It hasn't confused my faith. It hasn't challenged it. It's made it so much deeper. And I just really, these encounters have just made me really believe that we, religion cannot thrive unless we build more relationships like this. And I mean, I think that it's been made easier for me because the engagement has been primarily musical. I think the only things that we need to build healthy and authentic human encounter is music and food. Like that's where I think the heart of healthy and flowering human relationship is, is through music and food. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, 
Well, thank you for speaking with us, Claire. Is there anything you. that you would like to plug or promote? Um, any social media that you'd like to share or events or anything like that? Um, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter and send me hate mail, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm at uh, Clarity Sabbath. So that's Clarity, like Clarity of Vision, and then Sabbath, like the day of rest on Twitter. And uh, if you want to read some of my sermons and hear some of my music, you can go to my website, which is Clarity Harp. H-A-R-P.ca because I'm a Celtic harpist as well. I mean, you can also visit the Hineni House website if you're interested mm. in that. That's mm. H-I-N-E-N-I house.org. Hineni is a, is a Hebrew um, phrase, which is uh, often seen on the on the lips of the prophets like Moses and, and Abraham. It means here I am. Mm. Hineni house.org if you want to learn more about that. Yeah, I think that's about it, probably. <laughs> hey, thank you. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for joining us. This was a yeah. fantastic conversation. Mm. Oh, thank um, you so much for having me. This was great. Yeah, I really thank enjoyed you. it. I guess I could also say, too, um, because it, I don't think it was public when you first invited me, but it is now. Um, I'm actually leaving my position at St. Jude's to be the interim pastor to the St. Bridget's community oh, at man. Christ Church Cathedral. Mm. And um, it's also a really beautiful, queer, positive, affirming community. Uh, they meet on Sundays um, in the evening, which is kind of nice sometimes, at uh, 5.30 p.m. at Christchurch Cathedral, 690 Burrard Street, downtown. It's a good place. It can be hard to find places that are safe, and churches are notoriously right. elusive sometimes about <laughs> actually mm -hmm. saying if they're affirming or not. St. Bridget's is very explicit. So yeah. I always tell people, like, if you're looking for, if you don't want to let go of church, like, if you want to let go of church, you let go of church. Like I'm not the kind of person that tries to keep people where they're not going to thrive. But if you're, if you don't want to give it up and you're looking for a safe place, you can come to St. Bridget's or to St. Margaret's Cedar Cottage. It's also an affirming church. Come visit us. Although St. Margaret's isn't in person yet. We, we're still on Zoom because of, you know, everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard, but there's a pandemic going on. <laughs> yeah, there's a pandemic. <laughs> Wait, what? Um, well, yeah. Thank you again for yes, joining us. Thank uh, you. This was a fantastic conversation. I'm really excited to share it with, uh, with our listeners. Mm -hmm. Me too. Yeah. Uh, do you guys have any recommendations this week? I thought of one, and it's to put that on really, really stupid. Oh, God. oh, I can't. Oh, I know yeah. it's not. Oh, you'd oh, be no. surprised. Oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Should somebody else go first? So it's not just like out of left field. Um, let's see. Well, I've been listening to, um, there's a podcast called Straight White American Jesus, which I've been mm. listening to a lot. <laughs> I wish there were more podcasts like it that focused more on um, the Canadian sort of hardcore, uh, like the Christian right, basically. It's about that. But it's, it's. Um, I don't know, I always find it really engaging. Um, it's very American. A lot of those kinds of podcasts are American, but it's fun. Yeah, I, I don't know. That was kind of the only thing I could I could come up with. <laughs> no, that was great. I actually do have one. Okay. So a big theme of 2021 for me is I just want Evan Rachel Wood to be happy. Uh, yeah, she came out, I think, earlier this year with her stories about um, the abuse she suffered at the hands of Marilyn Manson. Mm -hmm. And it's been mm. incredible to watch her like her righteous fury as she exposes everything and all of, and is like given a platform for other victims of this disgusting individual mm -hmm. things i didn't realize she has really put herself out there and has like changed and developed like domestic abuse laws in california oh wow and is oh yeah she's everything <laughs> i'm obsessed her so with her but uh, i don't want to like draw more attention to it but like he's been given a platform this week and that's all we need to say about it however on her instagram this week which is what i would recommend going and finding just for like a really good like feel good serotonin 
boost is her and another musician friend performing at the bourbon room in las vegas um the new radicals song get what you give Mm. and her just like indignantly flipping off marilyn manson mid-track and it is so good and she's so angry and it's so incredible and like i listened to it this morning when i got ready and was like (laughs) i love her she's she's wonderful she's great check it out (laughs) should i do mine because it's so left field and maybe he wraps up something more normal yeah, I don't know. I'll, well, I'll try. <laughs> Mine is um, recommend just throwing really unhinged parties for your pets. Ah, um, <laughs> that is the opposite of stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 out there because that's that's the first thing that popped in my head. I'm like, yeah. oh yeah. So Olivia and I have a cat who's about to turn twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick knows this already because he's yep. invited. But we're mm-hmm. holding a small birthday party for the cat birthday slash retirement slash retirement because 12 and cat equates to about 64 yeah. in human oh, years yeah. so she's having an early retirement so yeah. it's going to be a happy birthday and then retirement party for her we are getting banners mm-hmm. um we're going to do have like a photo booth like a photo wall so you can like take pictures with the cat oh yeah like yes. by the time this episode comes out we'll have had the party so like nick <laughs> just get ready of like how we've talked about how bananas we want this to be oh, yeah i mean oh, the intention itself was like just the perfect amount of unhinged <laughs> <laughs> we made an Instagram chat group and then we made a fa- a private Facebook event called Hi, it's me. I'm Clara. <laughs> yeah, there was no mistaking when it was happening or yeah. anything like that. They've made it abundantly like, clear. Like, listen. <laughs> right? Don't I, come if you're not comfortable, but if you're only not coming because you think this is weird, then you're not our friend anymore. Yeah. I was at work <laughs> yesterday and it was like kind of slow. I was like, maybe I'll get cut early and I can go get some party decorations and see what I can find like everywhere because this is all I'm thinking about this week. Let's oh be honest. Nobody I that you're friends it. with was not expecting this. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's some, on some level. Oh, yeah. But, like presents aren't required, but like, she's not gonna turn them away right (laughs) (laughs) she's a fancy lady she's a fancy lady right somebody bring a strawberry for clara to roll on yeah yeah yeah, throw birthday parties for your pets you'd be surprised at how into you you get really quickly (laughs) um i've got uh, two quick things here one is kind of pertaining to our conversation earlier about um affirming churches there's a really wonderful website if you are within as far as I know, it's just within North America. It may be wider. If you are a person who would like to be involved with a Christian faith tradition um, community, there's a website called Church Clarity, not directly related to Not affiliated Claire. with me. <laughs> not affiliated. <laughs> but it's uh, Church Clarity, and it's a website that documents... Um, the positions of different churches because oh. there are a lot of churches on their websites make it, are incredibly unclear about whether or not they're affirming. They say things on like purpose. "all are welcome" and then their theology does not match that at yeah. all. So Church Clarity is a really fantastic website. It uh, gives you kind of a rating meter. It asks you can kind of submit churches that you are familiar with, and it asks questions like, "Is does this church have um, leadership who are people of color? D- leadership who are uh, women? Who are non-binary people?" Mm. It, is there a welcoming statement that explicitly mentions LGBTQ2S people? Things like that. It's a really great website. So if you're looking for a community to be a part of within uh, North America, please do check out Church Clarity's website. They'll give you a good indication of whether it's a safe place for you or not. Mm-hmm. Um, my, other, my other one is um, kind of a pre... I've, I've just started this book. Is really good so far, and I'm going to preemptively recommend it. I may take it back if it ends up not being good, but, <laughs> but it's called Good Thinking, um, and it was uh, written by us. It's written by a scientist, but it's talking about um, 
the need for critical thinking. Um, and it kind of uh, talks about different situations where critical thinking has either kind of basically saved lives or cost lives, mm. um, the lack of critical thinking. A really, really important topic for this day and age when we have an abundance of information out there and it's really difficult to tell what is good information and what is not. We are not mm. good at that as human beings, not mm-hmm. innately good at that. It is a learned skill that you have to you have to actually practice and and learn um so it's a it's called good thinking i recommend the first couple chapters of it (laughs) um but yeah uh, walk it back if the good thinking is not so exactly if it's not so good thinking yeah Um, yeah yeah. that was great fantastic yeah yeah well thank you again claire thank you thank you so much all right well we'll see you guys next week thank you very much bye-bye